Welcome to Positive Talk Radio. Our goal is simple, to explore evolving ideas one conversation at a time. So stay with us as right now we present. Not very often that I get to talk to somebody that's been doing a whole bunch of stuff in his life and uh, um, many careers, many unique and exciting challenges. And he's an author and he's written some um, three uh, thrillers and and some really good stuff. He uh, uses technology and how it actually is when he puts together his books. And uh, and I just found out that uh, the uh, Curse of Cortez took ten years of of uh, research to put together, and uh, and that's that's that takes a lot of stick to itiveness, as it were. And uh, his name is Guy Morris. And uh, Guy, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate having me. I'm doing great today. Thank you. It is amazing when I get to look at some people's bios. Do when you put your bio together, did you actually realize all the things you've done in life? You know, it, it doesn't always occur to me until I put it on paper and other people ask me about it. Um, I, I'm, I'm more I'm, I'm always so forward thinking in terms of what next. How do I continue to be relevant? How do I continue to add value? How do I continue to explore the world while I still can? Uh, I don't necessarily look back all the time and think, oh, gee, that's all. I've had a very interesting life until somebody brings it up and and, and points it out to me at times. So uh, I do realize it at times, but it's not it's not front of mind, that for sure. Well, yeah, you see, you put your bio together and you put it up against my bio. My bio looks like I can't keep a job and your bio <laughs> looks like you've been successful at a ton of different things in your life and uh and continue to move forward with that. And, Very uh, kind, thank you. You were a 36-year executive with a Fortune Five, Fortune 100 software, high tech, and global energy. Uh, you've been a published songwriter. I got to ask you about that. That's now that is from a um, executive with a Fortune 100 company to becoming a songwriter for Disney. How the hell did that come about? <laughs> Um, well, it was a, it, it, a little bit by accident, to tell you the truth. Uh, I was a songwriter, and, and one of the things that I, I learned in college was the, uh, that inspired me in college was learning about men of the Renaissance who were um, trained and, and uh, practiced in sciences, arts, religion, politics, architecture. Um, so they wanted to be well-rounded individuals as opposed to specialists only doing one thing, which is sort of what our society kind of pushes today. And so um, I was a musician and I, I was a good songwriter. I wrote all the time. I, I led worship at church and a close friend of mine was a film producer and, and he was putting together a proposal for Nickelodeon on how to, um, uh, he wanted Nickelodeon to basically do a show that was sort of a MTV music videos, but for kids. Well, the, the, he, uh, he came to me and asked me if I'd write some songs for him. So uh, I, I, I hadn't written kids songs at that point. And so I thought that, that was an interesting challenge uh, for me. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And I, I wrote him five songs. He loved all the songs. And we went into a studio and did this marathon recording studio um, session. And, um, and his, but his pitch for Nickelodeon didn't get off the ground. They, they didn't take by the project. Uh, so I just forgot about it. I figured, okay, that was that was fun. Uh, we had we had a lot of fun with it. 
And a few months later, I get a phone call out of the blue from a, a guy from who was the head of Disney Records. And uh, he wanted to know if I would come in. He list, was listening to it, my tape that I'd sent in and wanted to know if I'd come in and work on some projects for him. Now, to tell you the truth, I thought it was a prank because <laughs> I, can understand. I, knew I had never sent the tape anywhere. Um, I, I, I rarely sent a promoted myself because I had a real job at the time that kept me pretty busy. And so I, I just never sent it to him. So I was, I challenged him. I said, no, no, this is so-and-so, or this is somebody else. And he finally, he read the titles of the songs and I thought, Oh, I know who must've sent that to you. So I went into his office. I, I went into the Disney offices. I met with him for, for uh, for an interview and, and we for a discussion and um and he hired me so we i did contract writing for him and and how that worked was they would have a project and they would send you sort of uh what they would call lead sheets um for each of the characters that that you want you were supposed to write about it might include things about their background or who they were what kind of anamorphic animal they were maybe some taglines is the kind of typical things that they would say and you it it was a little bit of a challenge because they would might call you up on a Tuesday afternoon and say they need songs by the next Tuesday. And, and that would be written and some form of recording so that they could listen to it. And so I, I, I went from taking sometimes taking months to write a single song because I was trying to perfect it to, I had to bang out three to five songs in a week. That's different. And so um, I, I landed some projects. I didn't land other projects, but um, that went on for a couple of years uh, until I kind of, I, you know, and, um, and it was an interesting, pro I got to work on a, a scary song project and I got to work on a dinosaurs project and a Aladdin project and a little mermaid project. And I think there was one or two others that's my, my memory's kind of slipping for me right now, but it was a fun, fun, um, fun thing to do. And, and, um, um, my, my son loved it, um, because I was always writing kids songs instead of my other stuff. And so it was, it was, it was fun. Now, did you get to go into the studio and meet any of the voice actors for any of these films and, and, or, or animations? No, that was, that's actually a good, good point. Um, typically these were products that, um, projects where they already had the film made. Right. And so what Disney would do in, in order to re-merchandise things with uh, the highest margin available, rather than paying the high royalties for the songs that were already on the in the film that were written by people like Elton John or whatever, um, they, they would have toys that they would sell at, at Disney studios and Disney stores around the that they they had Disney stores at the time while everywhere and all the malls before the malls took a nosedive. And so um, you would go in and you'd buy a toy, it might be a stuffed Little Mermaid doll or something, and then they would sell you a cassette with new songs uh, dedicated to Little Mermaid. And so these were sort of not the film version of songs, these were sort of their merchandising songs. And even so, you you could you know you could sell you know a few hundred thousand songs that never ever hit the air, airwaves at all, uh, simply by attaching them to their merchandise. Boy, were they marketing geniuses or what? They were marketing geniuses, and they could pay me really cheap. <laughs> uh, where you know if they if they did it with one of the the, the lead songs, that I'm sure that they would cost them a lot more, and it cuts into their profit margins, which are uh, really important for for a company like Disney. 
Oh yeah, well they're they're very excited about that, uh, making making a profit and stuff. But that's that's really cool. And you've done did that, and even diving with sharks. <laughs> that that was uh, that I I loved I, for a while in my younger years, and especially when I was living on a sailboat, I was diving all the time. And uh, I went on. Uh, there was a couple of different tours I went on. One was in off of um, Molokini in Hawaii. Uh, there was a couple of times in uh, Tahiti and once in Morea. And the the one that was the most exciting for me um, were was a shark feeding dive, a cageless shark feeding dive off of Morea. Did you have yeah. a death wish? <laughs> Well, I was on my my honeymoon at the time, and I, my 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 wife certainly thought so. She said, "Okay, I'm going to marry you. I married you yesterday. Am I going to have to bury you tomorrow?" And and I, I said, "Well, gee, I hope not, you know." But other people have come back alive, so let's 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 be hopeful. Um, it was actually for me. I, I came back from that just on cloud nine. I, I thought it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Um, and tip, what they did was they they bought several uh, large tunas and they would cut them up so that they were nice and bloody. And one guy basically would go stand and basically hold the tuna way above his head. And what would start is you'd get, you, you've seen videos of these fish tornadoes where the fish are so tightly together and they're just spinning in this tornado type of um, swimming structure. And the fish would basically come first and start nibbling away at the tuna. And then the sharks would come circling around that um, that person, that fish tornado, uh, checking it out. And then they'd swim through the fish tornado, and they would simply grab one of the fishes, you know, that didn't move out of the way fast enough, and come out the other side with one or two fish in their mouth. So um, it was you, you were, you know, when you're diving, you you have limited visibility because you have the sort of the mask on the side of your eyes. And so you would be surprised sometimes by now those who weren't holding the tuna would basically lay on on the, the seafloor and try not to. As the French dive master told all of us, he says, do not look like bait. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then he then he dived in the water before we could ask him what that meant. And we were like, okay, do, do you look, do I, do I look, well, yeah, you look a little baitish to me, I, I but, you know. Um, but the, what they meant was don't flap around a lot and don't make a lot of, you know, motions like you're a dead fish. Um, and so, yeah, you would you would be laying down and, and with no notice at all, this eight-foot gray shark would basically, or nurse shark would basically swim right by you within like a foot. And... Um, or swim over the top of you, or and, and and just go after this this bait, and we took turns holding the the bait, and so I would be standing there, and you're surrounded by thousands of fish just wiggling around you at incredible speeds, and all of a sudden you'd see this, you know. You'd see sharks coming in from all angles above you, uh, going after that fish tornado, and it was, it was a pretty incredible experience for me. Now, when the shark came, were they were you told to let go of the bait, or did you keep the bait until they took it? Well, no. As I said, the, the smaller fish were nibbling on the bait. Um, the sharks were going after the the fish, the fish, the fish in the fish tornado. Oh, gotcha. So they were based, the bait was basically to bring in all the other fish and then the other fish, the, the, uh, basically attracted the sharks. 
Oh, those poor fish. Could you imagine? I'm going to get some tuna. I'm going to get some tuna. Oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> I, that, that, that was a dirty trick. Yeah, it was. Um, so some of those fish, yeah. But, you know, that's that's that was the way it was. That's but, yeah, it was a, it, it definitely was. There was a danger. We had a tiger shark kind of show up toward the end. And I think that was the point. We were running low on, sand, on um, tuna. And so that was the point where we said, okay, that's... Uh, you know, let, let's go ahead and call this a day. <laughs> well, and and did they tell you whether or not the tiger shark was the more aggressive and was liable to uh, come after you where some of the other ones would not? Um, I think we were in a scenario where we probably, and they went back to the same spot daily to feed fish. So I uh, feed the sharks. So you know, th- we just decided it wasn't worth the risk. You know, we didn't want to, you know, we'd already been there. We were running low on air, um, you know, so we'd been down, we were about 65 feet. So we were pretty much at our maximum dive dive duration anyway. So it was just a good, good signal to basically call it a day. That would be the time that I would pee my pants in the water, <laughs> which is, which is good that it's in the water anyway. Well, um, my, my only regret, my only regret was that I didn't, um, uh, um, rent or buy an underwater camera. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what they have now and you, I'm sure you're really well, well aware of this, but they've got the virtual uh, gaming systems and some of them have got films that they took in, in 3d and, uh, and virtual reality. And so you can see mm-hmm. all around you and the, and the sharks and stuff like that. I admire your guts. I don't know that I have the guts to do that. <laughs> Well, that my, my wife wasn't all too pleased to tell you the truth. She she and she doesn't, she doesn't like me talking about the story because she wasn't very happy about it. She doesn't want to be a widow. She didn't want to be a widow on day two. <laughs> or or to have to change your name to Lefty or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. She you know, I, I, I you, you right now you don't need a wheelchair. Let's let's keep it that way. Yeah. What, so what is it about you that has all these things that you've decided to do in your life? What What is it about you that keeps keeps you motivated and keeps you moving forward and doing all these interesting things? Life is short, and if we want to have meaning in it, we have to pursue it with vigor. And um, my mom died when she was young. Um, I had um, I had death threats when I was a preteen. Um, I had death threats from um, uh, Mexican cartels when I was diving and exploring, searching, researching my book, Curse of Cortez, down in Mexico. Um, and I, I didn't want, I, I, I want to make sure that when I go, I, I, you know, it's like, the, I don't want to wait till I'm old and to do my bucket list. I want to, I wanted to pursue it as much as I could while I still could enjoy it. And um, there's still many things I never got to do um, and, uh, you know, that uh, on that. But I, I wanted to, you know, I, I do. I believe that the, the all the medical studies I've ever read all concluded the same thing, that the death rate was 100 percent. And so I, I didn't want to worry about how I was going to die as much as I wanted to worry about how I was going to live. And um, so it's it. I think it's that it's that constant search for um, new inspiration, uh, for deeper meaning, for um, relevance, for uh, the experiences that that um, create 
those sparks of inspiration within us um, and and to really look at life as as something to explore and to enjoy and to experience and and and, and not be satisfied with um, um, a suburban or a, a sedentary and, and while be it safe uh, lifestyle. Well, you know, the other problem with the the second part that you were mentioning is that if you're planning on doing it in the future and you're going to wait till you're retired and then you're going to wait till you've got enough money to do it, you may not be physically able to do what you could have done 20 years before that. And so you lose, you lose that ability. So I think what, what you're saying here is it's something that, that everybody should, uh, should think about and uh, to do your bucket list while you can still carry your bucket. Yep. While you can still do it. And, you know, and, there are there were times when financially it was impossible for me to pursue what I wanted to do, and there's still things I've kind of put off till my latter years. But my, I, um, I tell my wife, I said, "We're not getting any younger. We're not getting any richer. Let's go do it." And and she says, "Good, let's go play." And and, and I'm glad that she. I'm glad you found someone that likes to play with you. Uh, she's I, well. I ha- I had to tame down. Uh, th- they're flying flying a a um, solo or with a friend a ultralight across the southern Australia, um, uh, skydiving and a few other things. I had to kind of I had to put up to the side. But there were a few things I I haven't done yet. That and I tell her I says, listen, if I ever get really old, if they it, rather than unplug me, just let me go skydiving. Um, you know, a last hurrah, you know, if I'm going to go anyway, let's, let's go with a big bang or big splat, whatever. <laughs> you know, I've ever, never asked anybody this, but, uh, it's, I don't get to talk to a lot of skydivers cause it's, it's, it can be dangerous, but mm-hmm. what does it feel like? Do you guys, do you guys, do you have like a, as you're jumping out of the plane, does your sphincter tighten up and your, and your stomach and all of that? Or, or is it more calming and you're able to, because it would scare the hell out of me. Well, the, the fear, the adrenaline rush is part of it. I think it, it's part of that um, doing something you, you probably shouldn't. Um, but, but an experience that you, you, that will carry, carry with you um, through and until, until you, until you're gone. And so I think that it's, it's um, yeah, there's definitely a, a sphincter tightening moment, um, especially the first, you know, getting out of the plane is, 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 is hardest, but once you're on your way down, you're just trying to pay attention to, you know, altitude and you're trying to pay attention to the things you're doing. And, and I mean, God, there are some people that have done it so often that it's, it's playtime. But when you're first doing it, it's certainly a, a, a an intense adrenaline rush, and I think that's what um, I, I think a lot of daredevils are trying to look for. Now, I've I've kind of passed that. I'm, I'm 67 years old, so I've kind of passed the age where my wife will really allow. You know, she barely let me. You know, um, uh, sled down the driveway in the snow. <laughs> but and, you know, she'll she'll freak out if I do something like that. But I. I still try to continue to, I want to travel more. I still would love to go see places that might be a little bit uh, dangerous uh, to go to. Um, uh, and I've, you know, as I said, I, I'd rather live live well now than, than die poorly later. Well, and uh, so how you have lived and the chances you've taken, I know in one of your books, um, Mm-hmm. You talk about the uh, um, cartels, 
mm-hmm. and 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 stuff is but from doing all these things that you've done has that allowed you to put together books that have a lot of reality to them that are are really real and and researched really really well because you've been around all of this stuff absolutely but and i do a an obscene amount of research for my books because I'm trying to really infuse my fiction with a, a, a really healthy dose of reality. I, there's always a factual um, um, foundation to every single book. And, and I, I really make sure that that's the case. I, I, I might have fictional characters and fictional plots, but even there, um, both the plots and the characters are based on they may be based on people I've met along the way. Um, they may be based on things I've experienced or some plausible scenarios. Um, um, my my artificial intelligence books uh, were were inspired by a time when I discovered that um, through an associated a very um, obscure Associated Press article that a program had escaped the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories at Sandia, which is an NSA spy lab. And when I det- I spent months obsessed with that story, trying to figure out exactly how a program, a spy program, could escape the NSA labs, and which implied intent, which implied intelligence, which implied the ability for it to move itself and then erase the log trails mm-hmm. so that the NSA didn't know where it went. Um, and when I tried to figure out exactly what the NSA was trying to do with a program that had that amazing stealth capability, two FBI agents showed up at my door, which also freaked my wife out. <laughs> we, we had conversations about that event for weeks. She says, why are there two FBI agents in my dining room? What did you do? And, and, and who are you really? Who are you? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that was that was a, a great experience as well. And it validated my analysis. And that analysis became that program became a character in my book in, in Swarm and the, and the Last Ark. So uh, most all my books are, are deeply rooted in in true events, true history, true technology, politics, religion, as well as my own personal experiences in your um, in, in, in the things that you've done and in your belief structure. Where, mm-hmm. where do you think that we're going with AI? Because it's it's now a great big it's a great big topic of conversation. That- Absolutely is, and and I and I I want to say that there uh, we've had amazing advances in AI over the last several years that most people weren't really aware of. I think Chat GPT um, has become a really big buzzword, and it's really brought AI to the forefront of our culture, in part because it's now the first time an average consumer has had a chance to actually interact and experience uh, and and interact with uh, an artificial intelligence. But these are technologies that have been around and and developing in in leaps and bounds over the last several years. I first started experimenting in business operations with an early stage of pre-machine learning AI back in the late 90s. And so the technologies have been around, uh, they've been really um, enabled by uh, the advances in our computing technology, advances in uh, learning capabilities, big data, the amount of data that an artificial intelligence can absorb is a real critical factor. Uh, Just to give you an example, the current version of ChatGPT uses roughly 75 billion data points. The next version that will come out will use something along the lines of 100 trillion 
data points. Holy so man. these are almost unfathomable levels of, of data and details uh, that the machine gets to basically churn to learn on. And it wasn't the, the rapid advance of all of that has really been in part because of that um, large level of, of data available. Now, that's actually one of the, the risks that AI has in, in, in some of the higher levels of form. So if you think about AI, AI is done, doing great jobs in medicine, pharmaceuticals, materials resciences, nanosciences, astrophysics. Um, so we're using AI um, in, in intelligence, in uh, cybersecurity, and in weapons development. Now, um, it's so much so that in 2020, I believe it was, the RAND Corporation, which is one of the major think tanks, uh, wrote a report for the DOD. And in that report, among the top 10 national security risks for America, AI data poisoning was listed as one of the top 10 risks. Now, why is that? Well, it's it's fairly simple when you, when you think about it. First off, artificial intelligence um, is a, uh, all of them use a common, a, 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 a layered system of algorithms and data. And, and those algorithms are very complex. The data sources are very complex themselves. And so we, it's almost a black box um, for AI. When we think about normal um, program testing, we should know that if we put this data in, we should get this extra data out. AI is not the same way because of the way it processes the data and because of the volumes of data that it processes. But if I were to start introducing bad data, intentionally bad data into an artificial intelligence data model, um, I could get extremely uh, um, random or, or false outcomes from that artificial intelligence. And it would be untraceable as to what caused that false outcome. Now that's fairly benign if you're looking at a large um, uh, language model such as ChatGPT where maybe it's just trying to tell you how did the civil war start and it gives you some bizarre answer. But if I'm using an AI to basically monitor and manage the um, uh, the nuclear power plant on a nuclear submarine because it's smarter for the AI and it's more responsive than having people do it. It uh, or if I'm using that AI to basically manage cybersecurity, uh, and uh, or as we are, we're using AI to basically monitor our uh, nuclear defense system. Um, the results could be that I see a ghost, that the AI basically sees an incoming missile when it's mainly just a weather balloon. Um, and so it, it, it could result in some catastrophic um, um, disasters that would be a sabotage that would be wholly untraceable back to the source of that AI data poisoning. And there's a perfect case and study that we have on that. In 2021, I believe, um, there was a, um, a virus called that became known as the solar winds virus. Um, now, solar wind is a tech company and they discovered a virus in their system completely by accident. Some guy just happened to stumble on it, but it had already been in their system. They determined for well over nine months and nobody knew it was there. And to this day, they weren't exactly sure what that virus was meant to do. It wasn't stealing data, and it was, nor was it corrupting data, which now that virus, same virus, was introduced through a normal software update. So 
all data companies, all data centers um, go through a routine of basically patching their systems and they might, if they have um, 200 different applications in their data system, all of those applications require periodic updates and they'll get these updates in, 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 in um, sort of a, um, combined scenarios where it's basically it's not just one company at a time they'll get a a source of a number of updates and so they're patching their systems all the time um, and, and working with oracle and microsoft this was a common uh, process for us to do but they couldn't tell so that software other than coming through the firewall like a virus like a, a cyber attack um, where we have billions of dollars invested in um, firewall protections and other protections, it came in through this innocuous data update, which said a number of, and it, it, that same update in, impacted 18,000 corporations and eight major US agencies. Many of those corporations were the same corporations, data corporations managing the data, uh, the big data that provide, that feeds all of these various AIs. And many of those, um, uh, U.S. agencies included agencies that deal with uh, our nuclear energy, uh, deal, dealt with our, our defense systems, dealt with our cybersecurity, dealt with misinformation. From that, we had recent hacks that were millions of, uh, of government employees and confidential information was stolen and sold on the dark web. And so we, we don't know what the, that virus was meant to do, but the potential was there that it was designed to basically create false personas or false feeds into that large data model. So given that feed, if we if we fed in enough data that could create uh, sabotage uh, that we that could start a nuclear war, start a, a third world war or basically bring down our cybersecurity protections. So, also including the um, the electrical grid, I would the think. electrical grid is Electrical grid, to some extent, the electrical grid is a little bit outdated in some of its technologies, but as it's be, we've computerized it and tried to modernize it, yes, it absolutely could affect the electrical grid as well. So if so, we could end up in a war that we don't even know that we're in, and it could be a cyber war, and we can't even track it and know where it came from. That's exactly right. That's that exactly is right. The guy, that's a scary idea. It's a scary <laughs> idea, and that's part of the idea. That's part of the premise of my book, Swarm, uh, is a uh, is a large scale cyber attack of that nature. Now, imagine, and now we also, uh, ChatGPT is a wonderful technology. I think there's it's going to re, it's going to replace some jobs. It's going to enable some people to do their job faster and better. Um, it, but it also has potential uh, malicious. Um, capabilities. We already know that ChatGPT, which can write code, um, has been used to write malicious code. Um, and, and so we already know that. Now, are they trying to work to try and prevent that from happening? Yeah, but as creative as, as, as um, virus code writers are at creating their unique viruses, um, it's, it's, it's just as hard for the chat GPT developers, a company called OpenAI, to anticipate all of those things and, and, and prevent them. Um, I was watching an interview of the president of OpenAI recently, and one of the things that he said was a little bit chilling, which is, no, they can't, they can't really prevent all these things, but gee, once something happens, they can go back and fix it. Oh, good. I, okay, well, okay. 
okay, so we have a disaster and then you're going to go back and try and plug the hole in, in them uh, that created the disaster. That's a, that's a little late for me, you know, that, that, and, and that's where we're at. The technologies are moving faster. They're developing faster than our legal or technical ability to manage them and control them. And that will and probably that be the case creates, for, for, yeah, for. That creates a definitely uh, negative scenario. Yeah, because that'll be the case forever because uh, AI just computes and operates faster. And the faster it gets, the us poor humans, the slower we're going to react. Well, and so we, we can combine a few other scenarios that become a little bit scary. Now, for decades, the idea of sentient AI uh, was sort of taboo. Uh, it's just a program. It's just responding based on the data it's giving. It's not necessarily thinking for itself or making its own value decisions or, or projecting new uh, solutions that maybe we hadn't really thought of yet. But machine learning is all about coming up with new scenarios that we didn't anticipate when we were writing the program. And that's how the machines, the AIs are moving are doing a better job at certain things. Now, some of these things are very good. We have AI that can detect cancer cells in, in CAT scans much more accurately and faster than the best doctors can. So that's a good scenario. We want to, we want AI to be able to do those good things. We want AI to be able to, to work harder and faster at solving real problems than we can. But what if we had a scenario where there are now 15 to 25 companies around the world, mostly in the US, Europe, and China, dedicated to creating a sentient AI. And they're actually within a small number of years of actually doing so. And, and the fact is, we with um, some of the government structures, particularly in China and other places, they could have already crossed that threshold and we just don't know about it yet. And so we're, we're within a few years of an AI. Now, Bill Gates once said that one of the major dangers of artificial intelligence is that we can't guarantee it's going to have the same values and goals as we do. And so um, now that once you start getting to an AI that's sentient and an AI that reaches singularity, which um, um, many have said that is as soon as 2029, um, singularity means that an AI, a single AI, uh, is as smart as a single human. Now, assuming that we have extremely, really smart people that are developing AI, we now have the scenario of Jurassic Park where life finds a way. Now, there's nothing, there would be nothing necessarily stopping a sentient AI who's reached singularity from developing another sentient AI based on values that we don't share. Ooh, that, <clears throat> now that's a, <laughs> is that the fourth book, by the way? Uh, that's that's actually working in the fourth book. Yeah, a little bit. I'm, I'm dealing with that. I'm trying to I'm trying and I'm trying to struggle with training. Well, what would that really mean? What could that really look like? Could it uh, could it be benign or could it be malicious? And and, and how so? And um, so these are these are very serious questions that we really have to address. And right now, if I were to, to say, well, what are the controls? What are the legal international controls from this happening? And, and let's say being built into a weapon system. Um, and the reality is there are none. And um, both in, in the U.S. or in an international level. Now, we already are working on AI weapon systems that what that cross a moral threshold. And 
which there's a, a treaty called the laws, uh, which stands for lethal autonomous weapon systems. Now, we it's okay. The, the, the laws will basically say it's okay to make an AI that creates a weapon that's smarter and faster and more accurate and better at doing what it's doing. But we need to stop and we need to draw the line at an, an AI that can both uh, select a target and then decide to pull the trigger or to uh, to basically um, um, to basically make a kill shot, right? Uh, whether that's a flying drone or whether that's a um, a, a missile response system or whether that's an automatic gun or a laser or like the Iron Dome over Israel, um, mm -hmm. all are basically incorporating AI to be more efficient and, and, and faster. But we were uh, DARPA has uh, has already created the Navy already has one in deployment, uh, a set of drones that that work in a swarm. And now the Navy swarm drones are about six inches. They're basically launched from a cannon and they can essentially swarm an enemy location to basically provide a, a thousand different eyes from a thousand different angles so that the Navy knows where all the combatants are, where all of the hidden dangers are before they, they, they make an attack. DARPA is currently working on a new one called, I, I can't remember what they called, I believe it's called the Hive, um, where it, um, it's 18 inch drones that will also work in, in swarms of a thousand to 10,000. And these uh, drones are actually armed. Now, it's almost impossible, certainly impractical, probably impro impossible for us to have a, a soldier behind each one of those drones thinking and acting as fast as the drone can think and act to decide that now that something's been identified as perhaps an enemy combatant or an enemy missile station or gun station or whatever to um, pull the trigger. So these drones are already being trained to act in an autonomous way. Now we haven't deployed them yet because we haven't made that decision, but I can imagine a scenario if China decides that they want to actually take Taiwan and they're making serious threats to do so, where we wouldn't be tempted to basically deploy something like that. And so we're, we're already creating AI that can decide that for itself that you're a target and that you should be taken out. Um, and now the question is, have we ever created a technology that was infallible? We haven't. We've never created a program that would, was 100% free of bugs, tested so much that it could, would never make a mistake. Um, could not be corrupted by AI data poisoning or could not be corrupted in some way. And so we're, we're kind of crossing a pretty dangerous threshold with, with artificial intelligence. And while it has enormous potential, um, we're unprepared for the risks that that potential um, brings with it. Question for you. Is it possible down the road for an AI um, um, machine that is uh, capable of of doing things like a human does them, can they, and, and as an example, we were to send them into battle and mm -hmm. rather than sending um, soldiers, we yep. sent these and, but then they develop the, as they continue to evolve uh, self-preservation. Yep. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, Boston Dynamics is a robotics company that's creating AI soldiers now. And they're, because they, these soldiers have to be agile, they have to be mobile, they have to be, um, they have to be away, they, they can't be connected to a wire of any sort. Um, so we're dealing with uh, the communication transmissions, the data transmissions through microwave transmissions and other, other vehicles. Um, but they're so agile right now that you, I've seen videos and, and you, can, you can go on YouTube and, and just say Boston Dynamics and, 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 and see their robotics. They got them where they can dance. I mean, they can, they can jump over hurdles, they can climb rocks and, and climb over things. Um, they're extremely agile. And the next step that they won't show you the video on is how are these how are these um, robotics good at basically using weapon systems? Now, it's it's good if we have a robotic a AI that basically can do demining, can can right. minefield. It's good if we can basically have an AI, AI that can sneak behind enemy lines and, and do reconnaissance. It's and it's potentially dangerous if we're allowing that same AI robotic soldier to basically go into battle. Um, and again, the, the question is, do we want a machine to decide that somebody's a combatant and, and take them out? Um, you can imagine in a lot of places where there's, where there's um, uh, citizens um, um, uh, caught in the crossfire, where maybe a, a, a mother raises a gun trying to protect her four children against this robot that's just entered her home, and the robot determining, well, that person with a gun is, is an enemy. Right. And so there's there are a number of scenarios, which is one of the reasons why they haven't been deployed till now up, up you know, so far is they're trying to see that they're trying to get these these machines to get beyond those easily identifiable risk factors. But um, as we as we edge closer to conflict, either in, in with Russia or with China, you know, there's always going to be the temptation to 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 deploy these these uh, systems now the other thing is is we have we have to ask we know that uh, russia is is behind the curve um because they just don't have the intellectual a lot of their intellectual capacities left the country but we know china is absolutely committed to artificial intelligence and both china and uh, uh, putin and and xi jinping have basically stated that um, artificial intelligence, whoever uh, comes to rule, comes to dominate the field of artificial intelligence will be the country that basically dominates the world in the next century. And we know that this is China's stated goal for the next century and that they are aggressively building their military, building their Navy, building their missile systems, building their AI surveillance systems. Now, many people have heard about the AI surveillance system in China which uses uh, facial recognition, social media patterns, uh, communications, uh, surveillance communications, um, and can track you as you go from place to place, knows what you buy, knows where you spend, um, and can define, based on that information by itself, whether or not you're a good citizen, right? And based on that good citizen status, can restrict your ability to purchase, can restrict your ability to access information online. Um, what most people don't know is that China has already sold all or a portion of that same type of system to over 40 countries. 
So it's going to it's worldwide now. It's, 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 yeah, they're they're certainly trying to get it worldwide. I mean, there had there have been a few cities in the United States interested in that technology for the sake of controlling crime, but that's you know that's a little bit like we're going to basically control you know monitor everybody so we can find the one or two percent of the criminals in the city. We have this thing called the Constitution that would yeah that. we do and and it, it but um we. The, we also had, you know, as Edward Snowden showed that uh, even our own government isn't beyond crossing, basically pushing right up against the edge of that constitution as close as it can in order to protect the, the nation. But most of the systems that China has sold to have either been in South Asia, uh, Africa, the Middle East or Latin America. Um, we haven't, we're, they haven't sold anything in the United States and the Huawei um, um, internet system, which was banned in the United States and Canada was part of uh, the reason why. Now I'm assuming that as far as AI intelligence goes, you can't program morality into it. Is that, or I believe you can. Uh, the question is, are we mo are, are the AI developers working on that as part of the process. Um, one of the reasons things I bring up in my books is that um, the, the technology is moving faster than we are and, and we, we're not focusing on value systems as much as uh, functional capabilities. Um, the data sources that we're feeding in are not the data sources to project morality. And so we, we get a little bit of it in large language models around cultural issues where they say, well, they've trained the AI or restricted the AI from um, um, deal, uh, speaking things that we would find culturally offensive. So, for example, a few years ago, um, Microsoft released a chatbot on the Internet. And they they allowed the they they allowed it to be basically exposed to the internet so that it could learn how normal people talk and and, and interact with each other. And within 24 hours, that chatbot was basically espousing um, racist and fascist and Nazi viewpoints. Uh, and so they had to take it down. And, and within by the second day, they had to take it down so that they could realize that. It, yes, it would learn. It would learn. Um, it would learn quickly, but it might. We, it, we didn't necessarily have the value model, models worked out so that it would basically reject things that conflicted with uh, our, our our values. And so, because all of that kind of talk exists on the internet in in buckets, the AI model basically learned to to adapt it. So it it doesn't it it can't reflect what is, you know, a, a website that is uh, espousing uh, lies about a particular subject. It isn't capable yet to to go in there and say, nope, that's a lie, uh, based upon the research that it does with other websites uh, to to make a value judgment. Um, in some cases, if, if we are we are training AI. There are training AIs to basically make that value distinction. But right now, most of the AI development has not gone that deeply. And so, yeah, one of the key risks that people will talk about with the current chat GPT is that it could be used to promote uh, misinformation. It's a, it's a fascinating topic, and and I, I guess the, the next the, from what I've heard. 
and correct me, but I, th- I think the next five to 10 years are going to be really telling in the development of this to determine yeah. where we, where, where we, are we going to draw the line? And is there a point in time when we are no longer going to be in control to draw that line? Uh, we, we, we've already pretty much, we're already crossing that threshold. Oh, great. Where we where, um, and, and this actually was a question that came up with the owner of chat, the president of chat GPT. And, um, and, you know, it would be very difficult. For example, uh, Google just announced an AI note called BART to basically be part of their search engine. And Microsoft is going to be using chat GPT as part of their search engine. But we're re- as AI continues to advance rapidly through corporate America, uh, and through the military and through governments, both within the U.S. and, and abroad, it's going to we're reaching the point where we can't necessarily just unplug it. Right. You'd say, well, if an A.I. goes bad, you just go in and plug the computer. Well, you know, similar to how Microsoft had a very tried to argue that they couldn't take the browser out of their Windows system because they had embedded it into the Windows system itself. We're, we're, we're crossing that threshold with A.I., and many of the AI, and a lot of people don't realize this, but are, are built around what we call neural networks. And I mentioned the data models and how these big data models are managed by dozens or hundreds of companies. And um, there are neural networks around the world. The biggest one, or one of the ones that I, I keep a close eye on, is one called uh, Singularity Net. And that's based out of Hong Kong. So it's a China controlled neural network. And that neural network is specifically oriented towards artificial intelligence, sharing information with each other. So um, you've now got millions of communications back and forth between AI to AI. And these communications uh, are, are such that even the developers aren't exactly sure what the AIs are, what kind of information the AIs are passing back and forth. We already have AI that can code from scratch as much as as well as self code itself and some of that coding is written in a way that the developers aren't entirely sure what the ai is coding and so we've we've crossed the threshold already where if if, if an ai uh, were to infiltrate a neural network and start to promote um values or objectives that the developers had never envisioned um, as a way of self-preservation or as a way of optimizing um, um, uh, uh, rough scenario, an AI is built to optimize, pollute, you know, minimize pollutants and optimize um, air quality, um, eliminating people or systems or, or infrastructure to do so. You know, maybe it decides that that's part of something it should do. So we're, we've already kind of crossed that threshold or right at the verge of crossing that threshold already where it would be impossible to necessarily figure out where that bug really started, where that um, uh, AI objective started and, and unplug it. You, you couldn't necessarily unplug Google. Right? No, not anymore. No. Yeah. And, and the algorithms, you know, we talk a lot about algorithms and stuff in, in my business of, of how do people get information? Where do they get pointed to? What sites do they get pointed to? How is it uh, disseminated? Which are very closely held secrets by these companies. Right, right. They don't want you to know how they're determining who is getting play. But they are quite literally making 
kings of some people, paupers out of some people, liars and all that. It, it, it's really difficult. Did you ever think, now, <clears throat> by the way, we're talking with Guy Morris. Go to GuyMorrisBooks.com. You can find out all about him and the three books he's written, Swarm, Last Ark, and Curse of Cortez, and pick them up. He's he's a, he's a fabulous um, interview and, and would have to be a great writer, but did you ever think that you your next novel was going to become a historical fiction? Um, <laughs> well, I, I mean, yeah, all my novels are based on some some historical fact and, and its current events and, and and other things. So, I mean, I intentionally write that. I, I I I there's a part of me that wonders whether my novels are so so realistic that it scares people. Uh, I've actually had, I, I do a lot of signing events throughout the year and every once in a while I, I'll run into an, an author or reader and I'll tell them about what I'm writing about and they'll, they'll be like, no, no, that's too scary for me. That's too real. Uh, I, I can't even watch the news anymore. Uh, your books would uh, keep me up at night and I can't have that. Um, <laughs> and that is so true because, you know, we don't know, we, all of us sitting here that go to work every day and we watch, you know, like Gonzaga is going to be playing in the uh, final or in the um, um, March Madness tonight. And so a lot of us are going to be stuck with that and we're not going to turn on the news and we're not going to be. And But then we hear about these things that are actually going on and they're so beyond the scope of anything that I thought I'd see in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. It, it really is remarkable and you know like like ai there were movies back in the day about about uh artificial intelligence and and becoming sentient beings and all of that and we thought oh you know that's science fiction it's it's real it's happening now it's real now i want to i do want to caution that sometimes we we give ai um a either a sense of malevolence um, and, and, and uh, evil intent um, that I don't think it necessarily deserves. It still is um, a programmatic model, pro- programmable model, and and it's really built to optimize what it was designed to do uh, within some 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 limits and constraints. But because we are so far behind the curve, I mean, Congress is just barely even aware that it that they need to do something right now. They have absolutely no clue. I mean, they can't even figure out how to how to control the internet, which has been harmful for over, proven harmful for over a decade. We've been kicking climate change down the, the road, the can down the road for decades. So the ability for us as a, either a nation or an international community to get ahead of the curve is, uh, is not highly likely at this point without some catastrophic disaster coming along the line that prompts that. And so I, I, the, my, my fear is that we're basically, um, the, but the, the, the dangers of AI have to do more with what we're designing it to do and who's doing that designing. So uh, different than nuclear technology, which we knew was, uh, which basically was a, a cat out of the bag be very soon after it was developed. Uh, the United States developed it, and all of a sudden we had a dozen nations basically getting a hold of this technology and developing their own versions uh, until we 
we got together as an international community and we started putting caps on that. And we started restricting the intellectual um, knowledge of the uh, intellectual property about what to do and how to do it. We started restricting the, the people who were trained to do it and watching and monitoring and licensing those people very carefully. Uh, we started monitoring and managing the, the, um, the plutonium resources necessary for all of this in a very tight way. And while those things have been broken, we've had thefts, we've had stolen uh, uh, materials, we've had stolen IP, we've tried too hard to basically put a cap on that. Right now, there are no caps on, on in the intellectual property or the in, in intellectual people necessary to build artificial intelligence. So you can imagine of the thousands of billionaires that exist around the planet right now, any one of them could basically hire the people, buy the computers and technology to create something with no requirements at all that they had to report that to anybody. Mr. Musk would be a prime candidate to and, do. And I think he is actually. And he's one of the, Elon basically said about a few years back that with uh, artificial intelligence, we're summoning the demon. And then he turned around and basically started investing in artificial intelligence companies. He's now uh, talking about bringing out an artificially intelligence driven uh, robotic that he says would be a household aid um, that he wants to sell. Um, he's included artificial intelligence in most of his cars and other other um, other products. And so, yeah, he it's we have no controls over the billionaires uh, out there or the countries out there spending tens of billions a year as to what they're doing with the technology and how will that impact us on a daily basis. Right. So, you, yeah. you know, my former my former um, profession is real concerned about that, that they're going to automate bus driving. Yeah. And and right now, you know, um, um, driverless cars are a reality. They're they're not common. They still have dangers. They still have restrictions. They're they're still trying to get licensed and all that kind of stuff. But we are test. They do have license to test them, and but they do have um, they do have some blind spots. Um, uh, they have blind spots recognizing people of color. They have blind spots recognizing children below a certain height. There's all kinds of blind spots that that they're still dealing with. Now, I have no question that they'll try and resolve those known blind spots, but that's just one example. And, and we are trying to look at how artificial intelligence can be used uh, across so many different industries that do affect us. Communications. I have a friend of mine that used to, used to be a colleague at Microsoft. He's now working for one of the big uh, <coughs> cell companies in um, building artificial intelligence into their uh, intelligent network. And it crosses a number of different privacy models and privacy thresholds. And they're still, they're having trouble figuring out how to get the technology, not only to do what they want to, to do well, but for it not to do other things that we don't want it to do and create a potential um, um, exposure to privacy information that that it might might use or restrict people from communicating that don't deserve the restriction. So there are um, there are ramifications for how it's being used and the fact that it's being used now because it's the hottest technology. Um, Google, Microsoft, Oracle, um, and and dozens of other companies are promoting OpenAI and others are are promoting. Um, artificial intelligence applications 
that will permeate the business in hundreds of different ways and permeate and, and permeate uh, basically the products that we use every day. I will tell you, uh, Guy, by the way, we're talking with Guy Morris, and he's an author. And you've got lots and lots of material to work with these days. I can tell yeah, you. Yeah, I do. Almost too much. I'm a little overwhelmed at times. Do you know that yesterday in Los Angeles, California, they had two tornadoes touchdown? Yes. And I, I was actually, I was in... Well, probably had to be 30 years ago now, maybe 35 years ago or more. Uh, I actually witnessed a near tornado touchdown in Irvine, California, um, from my office. I had an office um, in Irvine at the time, and and I saw a funnel cloud basically forming a couple hundred yards away, and it freaked me out because I, I was watching this funnel cloud basically form and move toward the freeway. Um, now, it never fully formed, it never fully touched down, but it, it came very, very close. And so, yeah, it, it's it's rare, uh, certainly very rare, but it, it can happen. It's uh, It reminds me, there was a movie called Day After Tomorrow, mm -hmm. and they had, a, they had a, a picture of, of um, tornadoes all over Southern California and all of that. And that's global warming. And I, we could be going back there to... You know, I, I've never seen a winter like this in Southern California and the number of storms that they've had and how much snow they're getting and stuff. Their drought effectively is over, it looks like. Well, it looks like it's certainly over for the short period of time. Uh, the, right. the water usage in the population of California has just raw sites skyrocketed. I don't know if it's basically replenished the Colorado River systems. Uh, Not yet. It will have an impact on that, but a number of the Southern California communities rely on the Colorado River, as well as Arizona, Nevada, and others. And so there are cities in California that are basically being, have been shut off from having any water at all. And there are cities in Arizona that are now can no longer get water because of the, uh, the drought conditions. And one of the problems with California, because of the way they've built their reservoir systems, is that so much of the water that they've gotten this year have basically it just creates floods and runs off into the ocean that they're not capturing a lot of it they're capturing some of it but certainly not all of it uh, it has helped with some of the major uh, several of the major reservoirs that they've had so that'll stave off a severe situation come this summer but um, the the farm communities in, in uh, central america don't use those systems uh, they use a lot of groundwater and it takes long, long, and the groundwater has been pretty much depleted. So we, we still have a problem. It's not as dire and, and, um, and apocalyptic within the next year or two that it was. It'll take a few years for those that water to basically be depleted again. But unless this becomes a normal weather pattern, um, once every 20 year, you know, superstorms uh, is... Uh, given the population growth and, and use growth in California is still problematic. But so it's, I'm not ready to say it's solved. I'm, I'm just saying we, we got a, 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 a prayerful, thankful reprieve that it's not immediate. You are, you must spend a great deal of time doing research because you are so learned on so many subjects, which, which by the way, makes you a great novelist. Thank you. And, Thank you. And that's really, that really is cool. You need to go to his website, which is, of course, uh, GuyMorrisBooks.com. He's got three great books out, uh, Swarm, Lost Ark, 
and Curse of Cortez. Curse of Cortez, I would like to that you did ten years of research to get that book done. That that goes deeply into stuff that we don't. I'm not even sure that what you're talking about there is really in the history books. Well, a, a lot of it is, um, but certainly some of it that came out of the Mayan mythologies, and but also I had to do research into geology uh, uh, and some of the um, younger Dryas um, research. So one of the things that it started from a real story. It started, actually, the, the whole the book started as a sequel to a short story that I wrote for my son 35 years ago when he was like 11 years old. And um, the short, it was a typical 11-year-olds. They love pirates. They love treasures, lost civilizations, ghosts, all that kind of stuff. But I wanted, I am always love books that are based on something real. And so I wanted to do research on a real lost plunder that, um, and, and try and dive into the mystery. Now, the story um, was that in 1672, Henry Morgan took 36 ships, 2,000 men to raid the city of Panama, which was the richest city in the New World for a lot of reasons I won't go into. Uh, he lost roughly half of the men uh, before he even got to the city. Uh, but even so, with roughly 1,000 men, he, uh, he took over the city within a day as it was burning to the ground. Um, and a, a 400 ton ship called the Santissimo de Trinidad basically escaped the harbor with uh, probably a, a, a full of gold or half full of gold. Um, but even so, he brought back 30 to 35 tons of plunder and 600 slaves. But when he reached his fleet on the Caribbean side of the isthmus, um, he cheated everybody and even his own men, and basically gave them the pittance of a couple hundred pieces of gold each, which was a fraction, a small fraction of what he'd taken. And then he disappeared with the rest of the treasure on three ships that were never seen again. But Morgan survived, and he showed up, and so something happened. He put it someplace because he showed up with an empty ship in, in Port Real, Jamaica, about four months later, and was arrested immediately by the British because he broke a peace treaty with Spain when he did that raid. Well, they sent him to London where he was under house arrest for three years. But in London, he was a hero. He broke the financial back of the Spanish. They never recovered from that again. He opened up the Caribbean to the English and the Dutch and the French and everybody else and was knighted as Sir Henry Morgan, sent back to Jamaica as lieutenant governor with a garrison of soldiers. But instead of going after any, and he was to get rid of piracy. But he only went after one man, a guy named John uh, uh, John Searles, who was the captain of a ship called the Cagway, which was part of his fleet going after Panama. But apparently John Searles had cheated Morgan before he cheated everybody else. Um, the rumor was he had, he actually captured the Santissimo de Trinidad and unloaded a big portion of, of its treasure, and he disappeared with that. Um, but Morgan instead went into this haunted, drunken, depressed debauchery and burned his logbooks before he died. So the world would never know the truth of what happened to his $35 billion, uh, you know, 35 ton billion dollar plunder, 600 souls and three ships. And three years after he died, the whole city of Port Real sinks into the ocean, including his grave from an earthquake tsunami. Many of the locals at the time said they had been cursed by Morgan. I was fascinated with that story. I thought that's an amazing story for a number of reasons. One was it's really hard to harder than you think to lose 30, 35 um, tons. You, you think of plunder with three ships and 500 souls. You can't just go, you know, five steps, dig under this tree and that, and, and there it is X marks the spot. 
And so I was determined to find clues as to where he had hidden it with under the belief that by now somebody must have found something. Maybe they didn't even understand what it was, but they found something. And I found a person who I believe did find it. Uh, his name was F.A. Mitchell Hedges. He got away with $6 million of 1911 gold um, uh, after digging on this one island for seven years and claiming six months before he disappeared, he had found Atlantis, which was an unusual claim in and of itself. Um, and then the second thing I wanted to find out was what traumatized Morgan, what scared the British piss out of him so bad that he would hide, burn his logbooks to keep the world from learning the truth or go what would keep him from going back and getting the billion dollar plunder he'd already killed thousands of people to get. And, you know, he was a pretty greedy, you know, um, you know, kind of guy. So something happened in Morgan and, and I was determined to figure out what that was as well. And so part of the research was to find out what happened to the treasure. And once I had an island that where I was pretty sure I had an idea of where he had stored it, and, and I figured it had to be some kind of cavern structure somewhere, right, in order for it to, to be hidden. But there are only so many places where you can go in the Caribbean to find that kind of, um, that kind of uh, infrastructure. And so I, I went to all the places. I read every book ever written by him, including the biographer that was on the trip to Panama uh, with him. Um, and searched every island, every place that had a Morgan name slapped on the door for a tourist reason. And once I found this island, I realized that Morgan's uncle had conquered that island 40 years before Panama, 30 years before Panama, and turned it into a raging pirate base. So Morgan knew this island extremely well. It had volcanic, um, it had a volcanic history, so it had lots of caverns and tubes and places to hide things. And to this day, um, there are certain of those caverns that the locals will not go to because they are said to be haunted by evil spirits. Now, Morgan was an extremely superstitious man. And so that was another clue. When I traced the history of that island back, 100 years before Morgan's uncle, the a Spanish Inquisition massacre had gotten rid of everybody, all the indigenous people on this island, and stopped a 2,000-year pilgrimage of other people from the mainland canoeing 50 miles to this island before anybody, the Spanish bothered to ask, why are, why are these peasants canoeing 50 miles over open ocean to come to this island? What's so special about this place? And I tied that pilgrimage to the Mayan 5,000 year calendar and the Mayan creation myth. Now in the Mayan creation myth, which was one of the things that was interesting about it is that the Mayans had creation myth had said that the world had been created and destroyed three times before the Spanish had arrived in 1514. And the, this, they were on what they called the fourth epoch. And what I finally realized was that when they, the Mayans called an epoch, they were tying that to their 5,000 year calendar. So each of those creations and destructions align with a, a cycle of that 5,000 year calendar. And the second epoch, of the calendar, the world was destroyed by a massive fire that just consumed the entire planet to them, the entire the entire world, and then flooded. This aligned directly to the Younger Dryas asteroid event. So people survived the Younger Dryas asteroid event in Central America and learned to talk about it until they wrote about it in their Mayan myth. 
and that basically connected the Morgan's treasure to this ancient cataclysm. And it was a fascinating journey for me to really do. And so I had to write what I felt would be an equally compelling, cool story that was a modern day for a, just like an Indiana Jones or a Da Vinci Code, where every step you go in this treacherous adventure, you discover pieces of the puzzle uh, that connected together. And so the Curse of Cortez took me years to, to I had to do research into underwater geology and underwater um, uh, typology. Um, there were roads cut in the coral reefs off of Belize and Honduras that head directly out to this particular island. Um, there were um, the, you know, just all sorts of hints that really talk about how, and I finally realized after research, years of research that this island used to be on dry land. It used to be part of the dry land 13,000 years ago when the asteroid hit. So it was actually part of the culture back then and only became an island after the Younger Dryas disaster. So um, it was the location of what once was a civilization that was destroyed by, by this, this. And that became the Mayan mythology, not only their creation mythology, but they have a myth called Jobaba. And Jobaba is this submerged um, place of death, fear, evil spirits, and, and other things. And it perfectly described the, ca the caverns on this one island. Do you know that? Have you have you um, um, shopped that to any producers in Hollywood? That would be a hell of a movie. It would be a hell of a movie. Actually, the book won a semifinalist for cinematic book um, for out of the Screencraft um, um, contest uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I and if I ever meet some Hollywood producers, I think it would make an amazing um, action adventure thriller um, that I think would be a. It's a summer blockbuster, and I tell people. When I pitch it at my signing events, I say, this is Indiana Jones meets Goonies for Grown Ups with a splash of Stephen King. It's a summer blockbuster in a book. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you're great to talk to. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk to you more on the 27th on Monday. Oh, uh, we are? Yes, okay. we are. Because you're, you're going to be back on the show, and that's when we'll be on Ooh. KKNW. And, uh, and this is this has been great fun. I want to thank you so I'll much. Tell, for remind me to talk a little bit about The Last Art, because there's some interesting history that goes with that one that deals with the Middle East I think people will be fascinated with. I I will do that. We will we'll go through that one as well. And then and I want to just thank you for, for being here. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate it. I enjoy yeah. being on your show. You're a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much. It's 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 great fun to uh I, I mean I'm a his, historical dude too, and I've just been fascinated with what you've been saying. So it's great. And the AI and and if you've by the way, if you're just tuning into this now, uh go back. We had an extensive discussion about AI and what its impact on us today is and what the potential impact on us in the future is. It really is well worth you sitting down and listening to this podcast in total. And I want to thank uh, Guy for being here. Go to GuyMorrisBooks.com and find out all about his books and him. Uh, quite a life, quite a life. Your, your, your wife is, uh, is, I'm sure, is very proud to know you. She just wants to keep you safe. I, she is. I'm just not allowed to talk about artificial intelligence in the future at dinner parties because she likes to, she wants to make sure that we keep our friends. <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. It, it's right now it's a bit of a controversial subject, but uh, it's not going to be forever, I'm afraid. Yeah. So thank you so much. And if you wait right there, I'll be right back. Thank you, Kevin. Take care. 
Hey, thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of PositiveTalkRadio.net. Please visit our website, oddly named PositiveTalkRadio.net, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to one another because each other's 